Cutting for Sign with Ron Cecil and Daniel Pinnerklein. The bad white men call him the devil. The Yavapai call him eyes like the sky. Linda Bruni, you are co-founder and U.S. Executive, Executive Director of Flying Kites, an organization based out of Kenya that supports schools as they help raise the level of education and basic services available to children living in poverty. In 2004, you traveled to Kenya to volunteer to teach economically disadvantaged students in the capital city of Nairobi. You soon realized that unqualified short-term volunteer teachers were part of the problem. Inspired by a growing movement to ignite community-led development, you co-founded Flying Kites, at the center of which is your teacher training center and academy, an innovation hub for your community of teachers and a model for your network of schools. Flying Kites focuses on girls, and your approach ensures that every girl has the opportunity to access critical information and resources related to her health, as well as how to use any of their newfound skills in a way that is most relevant to her. You work in partnership with Kenya's Ministry of Education to address critical barriers to learning by launching school meals programs and investing in water sanitation and hygiene infrastructure. Lila, you believe in inspired collaboration, helping those less privileged and that enough, not just something, is better than nothing. Welcome to Cutting for Sign, Lila. Hi, thank you for having me. 100%. Looking, uh, have been looking forward to it. <laughs> I have, I've been trying to get you on here for a long time. I it's know. Kind of perfect timing I, at this point. We're I way know, better at our job now than before. <laughs> yeah, I needed like two years to just really like self actualize. <laughs> uh, I'm psyched. No, thanks for having me. I'm. I'm super I, um, I'm on my my internet should be stable, but of course, like it's been stable all week. And then right before I log on, it says no internet. So I'm on McDonald's free Wi-Fi next door. Seems to work great. <laughs> That's amazing. That's Thank a you, Sal. Billions and billions, right? <laughs> so, I swear, it's always something. So yesterday, uh, and I, this might be uh, a statement that is uh, throwing Ron under the bus a little bit, but mm. I thought it was a charming moment. Here we go. But he got yesterday. I'm like, so why do why do you feel so strongly about having Lila on? Um, and, and he goes, he looks at me, we're taking a while. He looks at me and he goes, she started an orphanage in Kenya. Like, <laughs> and again, I don't know if that's the accurate way to say it, but that's what he said. And I was like, okay, mic drop. Well, yeah, it's I'm funny. Cool. Like as we, <laughs> as we were gearing up for Christmas, like, you know, my dad's still like, how's the orphanage? And I'm like, it's not an orphanage. Yeah. <laughs> I figured it wasn't that, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I spend so much time in this space of like international development that like certain things you know just feel so like antiquated or outdated but when you're like in the real world with like other people who have other jobs many people are like how's the orphanage and the, the truth is is like I'm kind of at a place now where like I'm a little bit more honest that like our journey did very much start in that direction. Um, but then when people give me the chance, I can be clear that like, and then we realized orphanages are a really bad model. Yeah. And there's a reason we don't have them in the US. And like, typically 
Not always, not always. In my experience, when you take a group of vulnerable kids and you put them under one roof, it's really tricky. Wait and, a second. So uh, I wasn't aware that we don't have orphanages anymore. What's well, like, we have I guess home. I was, but I didn't know. Like in, the, in the U.S., yeah. like in the '60s, we started to realize, like we have like what's called like group homes now. Yeah. Usually more for like teens. Yeah. Um, you, are not going to find, you know, like a bunch of three, four and five-year-olds, 300 kids in like an abandoned church, the way you would have here, you know, 60 years ago. Jesus. Cause we realized like, it's, it's not a great model. Like, you know, you have to get honest about the fact that like, you're never going to replace the family structure. So we moved into foster care here, which is really also very very tricky um but and when you say here you meaning that in States. the u.s yeah, okay. yeah 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 so you know here you're not going to find like an, an orphanage like you do in the movies with like 500 kids yeah. you know at christmas we were watching yeah. like old cartoons the other day and there was this like orphanage cartoon in the u.s um and kenya is moving towards that too kenya recognizes orphanages generally are not really best practice you know like you know ron you've got kids like um 300 kids in a, in a building you know it's especially when you're talking about kids who are coming from really tough situations a lot of trauma you know so you've got different ages never enough manpower um but i started my career working in orphanages and um when we started flying kites, I was just kind of responding to what I saw, which was just this immense need for orphaned, you know, previously homeless kids. Yeah. And then the longer I was in East Africa, the longer I was in Kenya, I started to realize, A, a lot of these kids have better options for care. You know, sometimes even their parents, if not their parents, you know, extended family. But the reason they're not in there in those homes is just because of poverty. So um anyway not to get like too into it but like it's yeah, funny no, like, we want to get into it this is orphanage is yeah. like I don't want to say it's like a uh, it's like a triggering word but it's like yeah. I have some shame around it because mm. you know that saying like when you know better you do better you know now with my however old I'm, am I like 37 I look back at like my you know I look back 17 years and my vision 17 years ago I would hope is completely different but it just feels like maybe that wasn't the most, I know it wasn't the best way to meet the needs of these kids. Um, well, wait a second. So you're feeling, hold on, wait, wait, wait. You feel shame yeah. for being 20 years old and deciding to do something. And now 17 years later, you're, you, you know, you're still doing well, it. Well, I'm coming, <laughs> it's interesting you say that. I talk about this with Mike all the time. Like, I think I'm coming through the other side of that. Like, and, and I know because I'm not as quick to judge other people. So when I meet other yeah. like humanitarians who are doing something that maybe I don't feel is the most progressive way to treat a problem, I'm less quickly to be like, oh, she's, you know, they're not, yeah. they're not woke. They don't know the right. Now I'm like, oh man, like they have really good intentions. They're on their journey. Like they're going to figure it out, whatever we can do to help them. So I think I'm less of a sort of self-hating you know, humanitarian, but at the same yeah. time, yeah, I mean, you know, somehow like I had my old desktop and I was like looking at old newsletters and I was like, 
like, I can't believe I wrote that. You know, you just, you sound condescending. You sound patronizing. You sound like a white savior. You just don't understand how to talk about this vulnerable population. You don't understand your own complicity in all of these problems that exist. And so, especially when you're 21, it's easy to sound like an asshole. Yeah, we were, <laughs> we were talking yesterday with uh, um, David McRaney, uh, who uh, wrote some very interesting books. Um, uh, you are not so smart and now you are less dumb. Um, and he, we were talking about shame quite a bit and like why shame, or sorry, this is two days ago. Um, and why shame, was it? Jeez, I'm confused. Yeah, keep going. Shame, okay. just stay there. You got it, you got it. You're a smart yeah. person. Time is not my strength today. <laughs> I believe in you. Um, and uh, um, we were talking about the like evolutionary potential, uh, uh, potential evolutionary reasons why sure. shame exists. And because um, it's still around and it's in us and totally. you know, we have fingers and, and mouths for reasons and we have our emotions for reasons to keep us safe. And I think that that's actually a really good example of like you read something that you wrote 20 years ago and you feel uh, to some extent shamed or whatever you feel some strong emotions and those emotions keep you from doing it again. You know? Right. And that, right. that makes right. a lot of sense. Now, then the thing we got into is like, when that gets out of control and you can't let go of it. And now it's like a right, state of right. being, you know, right. is not doing any good, has done its job, the box checked. Do you know what right. I mean? Right. No, and, and it's interesting. I was I was listening to something the other day about that too, about how shame is sort of like, you know, collectively we have to work together. And how a lot of people say, like it's Darwinian that if you're like very individualistic and you care about yourself, you're gonna go further. And this person, can't, I can't remember who, an anthropologist, I think, was saying, actually, no, like when you look at the data, um, people who are able to think about the collective, like to think about the whole group, their community, altruistic, do much better and will survive better. So it's sort of like it's Darwinian to actually care about others. It's not like innately who we are to just care about ourselves. Um, but to that point about shame, I, I don't, I'm not drowning in my own shame. I haven't heard, yeah, like, like I said, it. since my dad last Christmas, I haven't heard orphanage. So I was like, whoa, okay. I gotta like reset. <laughs> so I don't wake up and like have to like do my like mantra in the mirror, but it was like, she started an orphanage. was like, oh, kind of did. Hey, uh, again, I was like pretty sure that's that was like a, a Ron's kind of uh, funny way of expressing what you do to make it look like I, I, I even knew at the, the world. at the time I was like orphanage. <laughs> I'm really not sure. That's, that's I knew your I was like gonna... church background, but that's like your roots. Like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's for like sure. for sure. That's um, my Christianese. It's my a lot of like the orphanage. <laughs> The, the orphanage that I worked at when I was in college was, you know, funded by churches mm -hmm. in the Midwest. And, you know, for me, it was like these families would come over, you know, these these like white women, these these families, sometimes with their teenage kids. And, you know, the orphanage that they were funding, that they were propping up was I mean, it's it's illegal to house chickens like that in our country. Like if wow. somebody had dogs or cats in this scenario, they would be in jail. And yet this is a situation that like people are applauded for and they're excited every year to return with their kids. And 
it's just like, it's, it's that mindset that it's like, well, it's better than nothing. You know, these are poor orphans and it's 300 kids. They're sleeping on the floor, et cetera. But this is what we understand charity to be. This is what an orphanage is. And it's sort of like, yeah, challenging that mindset of, of what charity is. And I think a lot of it does have its roots in, in religion and colonization mm-hmm. and all well, that. I was talking with a good friend of mine, uh, David, uh, Ron just met one of my close friends of, uh, not just met, but we spent a little time together. And, uh, David uh, um, supervises a group home. Um, and these are like all, I mean, troubled youth. Troubled, yeah, I don't know if boys, that's a good yeah. way to describe it. Uh, it's, it's boys and girls. Oh. And, Is um, it? That's unusual, wow. Definitely, yeah. And oh. they're all, and it's interesting because it's called Trillium here. That's a pretty significant Portland um, I don't even know what to call the organization, but they uh, they have like all these little campuses. They have a campus and then different homes, you know, and then people lead each other. It's all so like the amount of um, guidance and structure around each kid, you know, and each person supervising each kid and each person supervising the supervisors. It's, it's a really intense organization, you know, and it's all around keeping everybody safe and accountable. And then when I was reading a little bit about what you do, it sounded, I, I don't know how analogous they are, because it sounded like you work with schools. Sure. Um, but it also sounds like you kind of are starting little schools. And I was a little yeah. confused about how that worked. No, I mean, the, the parallels that you draw with your friend's organization are similar in so much as we so when we shifted from an orphanage model and really kind of listened to the community how can we be how can we be helpful here the answer that kept coming back was education like if we can get our kids in school if we can get them learning we you know that's going to be like our path out of poverty so we spent the first 10 years of flying kites just building one school and just being really um thoughtful about our model you know trying a lot of things, failing at a lot of things, pivoting, reiterating. And at that time, you know, I had a lot of donors that were like, what's your vision for scale? And I knew enough to be like, we don't have a vision for scale right now because we're just focused on one really small school. And at any given time, you know, every year we would add a grade. So at one point we had like 40 kids. Um, Now we have about 140 kids and it's preschool through eighth grade, but that school we, we leverage that school as a model school for other schools in the district who are, um, they're usually public schools and they're struggling. They don't, they don't have funding. Um, so their teachers don't have support. Uh, they don't have access oftentimes to clean water. They don't have access to any sort of food. Um, so, so it's the same in the sense that our school now acts as kind of a hub, um, and, and, uh, joined onto the school is our teacher training institute. So now we we use our school as a place to kind of pilot interventions and then we scale them to our partner schools. We have six partner schools and really support those schools as they seek to kind of raise the level of education that they're bringing their kids, education and services. So you've been around for quite a while now. Have you had some uh, 15 years kids, kids like grow up and come back and like work for you and Oh my god. That must be me. We, it's getting really fun. It's getting really yeah. fun. We, yeah. cool. we've got one little kid who, when I met him in 2004, I'm not going to pretend I can tell you how many years ago that was. He was um, on and off the streets, you know, in and out of a shelter. He was a young kid. 
And he, um, where I was working was the slum. So it was the um, outskirts of the city. And, you know, those boat, those big planes, the Boeings get really low before they land. And he talked about being homeless and laying on his back and watching the planes come into land and always wanting to be a pilot. And he, we got him into school. He finished elementary school, went to high school, was just like unparalleled work ethic, really talented. And we were having the conversation about college and he was like, I don't want to go to college. I want to be a pilot. I've always wanted to be a pilot. And, you know, we're kind of looking at ourselves and we're like, you know, there's to some degree, like we have to be, we're not made of money in terms of an organization. And it's like, 40 grand to get your pilot's license. And this is one kid. We've got 5,000 kids in our network. Um, But he was so determined that we set him up with one of our donors who met him and just was like, this is the coolest kid ever to go from being homeless, orphaned on the street to like being so clear in what you want to do. So this uh, donor who um, is the founder of kayak.com, which is kind of a nice parallel because it's like all about flights. This donor put him through flight school and the, you know, the week after graduation, I said to Paul, I was like, come to Kenya. He's graduating. Like you made this happen. He's still like only 20 at this time or like 21. So Paul flies from Boston to Kenya. Um, Brian, the kid graduates. And then we decide that we want to get a video of it. And we want Paul to go up in this tiny plane (laughs) with, like an infant, like Brian to me, I'm like, I look at him, he's still like 12. I mean, you couldn't pay me a million dollars ever. It was like, it was like an East African safari plane, like very small, you know, ashtrays, like, like, and I'm kind of a nervous flyer anyway, but so, and what we didn't know is that Paul was also a nervous flyer and we didn't want to tell him that this was essentially like Brian's, he was going to be Brian's first guest. So you, so we get there and, and Brian is like twice as nervous as Paul. I'm the most nervous and Brian is, is very nervous. Paul is also nervous. Brian like buckles him in wrong. Like they're sitting in there, like <laughs> special, there's a special seatbelt and Brian gets it wrong. I mean, I can't even imagine, but they went up and Brian was incredibly talented and Paul was very moved. And we took an awesome video of it that I'll send you. And Brian was such an amazing student at flight school that they then hired him back to be an instructor. So now he's like an instructor. That's amazing. And like, they're not all like that. Like, you know, they're like, you know, there are some kids who, again, like, you know, a lot of the kids, especially from the early days, like a lot of PTSD, a lot of trauma. It's not the sound of music. Like it's been a lot of these kids, some of them, we just, we weren't able to like keep in our program. And others are doing really well, but just like fighting for that every day. Yeah. Ron, Ron how, how would you do if you were starting something like this? Starting a school. Right? Oh, my white, 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 white man privilege uh, wisdom. I, I'm, what, what I kept thinking as you were talking was how you never gave up on, on like re, rejigging the model. Like, oh, this isn't working correct and so instead of doubling down on that and and just being convinced that it's going to somehow work you had the generative thought process to go that well what's what's a different thing to do i mean i Uh, in in my world i you know i've I've been in in alcohol recovery worlds and and some other drug recovery worlds and 
nothing changes a person like having someone go elbow to elbow with them. In my experience that I've seen, like elbow to elbow, what does that mean? Like just being side to side, like we are here, you know, I'm going to do life with you. I'm yeah. going to teach you how to talk to people. I'm going to teach you how to talk to yourself. Like a yeah. sponsor or something? Is that kind of yeah. what like a sponsor or or a counselor or or a mentor of some kind? Yeah. Anyone that's that's yeah. just like I believe in you. That's right. Like, that's I see right. you. Yeah. You know. And and um, you've done that. You're doing that. You know, in a way that you're replicating a, the, a core place and then creating teachers and and. I mean, yeah. I I'm a dumb I, dumb. I don't know how any of this stuff works. It's it's amazing. <laughs> But I think it's changed a lot. I mean, I think if you, you know, 10 years ago, I would have thought that like I was going to be that person for the group of kids that we had legal custody of, you know, we had, we had a children's home. And then I had to get honest about the fact that that's a fantasy and, you know, I can, I can try and unsuccessfully do that for a group of kids, or I can step back and realize my, my proper role is um, building a team of Kenyans who know way more than I do about how to respond to, to the needs of the, of their community and these kids. And, you know, my role is kind of fundraising, storytelling, you know, we have a team in Kenya that, that runs the show. Um, and, you know, I was even like the other day, I was thinking about like some of our teenagers that have been with us for 15 years. And I was like, Oh, when was the last time I talked to so-and-so and feeling like, wow, you know, like maybe I could, I could have done better about like really following each kid, but I think there came a point in the, in the crossroads where I was like, I am not the person to to do this. Like I'm not the person to do this work more to the point, like who at, like I have no, and this is like, you know, when you talk about like the shame of development, it's like when you're working in these countries that have incredibly limited infrastructure, you can have a huge outsized impact, right? So like you can go and like, but but the other side of that is like, is really kind of yucky and and a bit scary where, you know, if, if, I, if, I, if I moved to, to Portland, I would not be able to at 21 tomorrow, open up a home for 30 kids. Because like we have, you know, a sort of, functioning infrastructure we have enough money in our like civil society to create like in an infrastructure that like some 21 year old girl with a backpack can't come in and just start taking in vulnerable kids but in many places in, in rural kenya like there's just simply not that manpower that oversight that and so you can do that which yeah i mean it it I feel lucky that i've been able to do this work and 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 it's amazing but at the same time now sort of like coming through many years of it like you realize yikes like I really had no business like I had no business just kind of like writing my mission statement and like opening a home and opening a school and so now thinking about just like working working to sort of strengthen existing systems and and ecosystems so that like we can get to a place where it's just not like this free-for-all for development just for fun, what, what would you have done different? Not yeah. what would you do now, but if you had to do it again back then, what would you do different? Or what would you say to a 21-year-old you know, person who has all of that heart, like their heart is breaking yeah, from yeah, population yeah. and they and 
they're ready well, to put their life on the line. Totally. But. Totally. Well, I'm lucky now that, um, I, it's hard to say like, what would I say? Cause like, every, you know, it was like 15 years ago. It was a long time ago. A lot was different. I think now it would be much, it's easier to sort of educate yourself much quicker. Yeah. You know, there's like just sure. a lot more material out there, like how not to F this up. Um, and I do talk to a lot of people who are in their early twenties and they're like, I want to, you know, I want to start something. I want to, you know, the first thing I say is like, and it's probably the last thing people want to hear. And I probably wouldn't have wanted to hear it at 20, but yeah. like, check out what other people are already doing and like, see if there's a way for you to work with them. You know, you don't always have to like start something, mm-hmm. see what's going on and, and see if there's somebody that you can partner with. But when you're 21, like, you know, you think you know better and you don't necessarily want to hear that. Um, what would I say to my 21? I would just be like, <laughs> Like I said, like, I think I've come, like, I've done enough of the work that I'm just like, I forgive myself for like, not having like that perfect, um, politically correct, most progressive approach, because like, I was working with kind of the tools that I had, and now I have better tools. Um, So I would probably just encourage my 21 year old self. (laughs) Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> I don't think like that. That's what I'm saying. It's like, yeah, I mean, I th- I think so. I think so. But also, but now you're just in I, awe that you that you could. And that I mean, and you have like, to be like 21 to like think that you have enough energy, like you know. But I think, but now when I do talk to people who are at the beginning of their career, like yeah. I hope that I am able to give some like really good advice about like listening to the community and like giving the community ownership over what you what you're planning to do you know so I mean that's a piece of advice that like I think is really important like don't come in with your own ideas what do you think about and I'm going to kind of stumble through this question but it's been on my mind a little while the issue at least and that's that a good friend of mine um, runs a, a vanilla bean export business out of Madagascar and it, it has over the last, he did it about 10, 15 years ago, started it with two of his friends and they were in the Peace Corps in Madagascar and grew to know a lot of the people there. And, and, and uh, then vanilla beans are huge. So that became a business opportunity that they, but now this, this vanilla bean export operation, which is the largest out of Madagascar, as I understand it. Wow. It's all, it's a huge business and he, it, it, but it's all still very at the communal level. You know, he's traveling over several times a year. He's uh, boots on the ground, interacting with the, um, with the farmers, you know, quite Paying, like fair wages and all that. It's a, it's a way for him to treat people well, cause he's a good person, you know, and he's like helping things over there. And so it's kind of, it, it sounds like you're doing something, something similar. And, um, and what, what it makes me think of is like, we talk about colonialism is a huge conversation these days and privilege, uh, white privilege, uh, male privilege, all these privileges. And it looks to me like you are using those, uh, the, the, the fact that you can go over there and have an effect in a very positive way. Do you have people who are not proponents of what you do and saying that you're doing anything negative and the reason I ask that is because I'm curious if more people, there might be more opportunities for like Americans or anybody privileged who has something to give to go and affect them because it's such a wonderful thing for everybody, it seems. But maybe I'm missing something there and I'm curious if I am. I think a lot about this too. 
And your question was kind of like, your question was a little bit tricky in the sense that I think you're asking, are there more opportunities for other folks to use their privilege? That's part of it. To go yeah. to developing countries. And should so, we? <laughs> what? You know, and should we, like, yeah. And should we? Yeah. It's like, um, again, it's like, I think about this a lot too. And like, I started my career as a volunteer. Um, and it's, I think it's like any day that you get me, I might give you a different answer. I think that the key is to be really clear about what your end goal is. So like, so getting involved in any sort of philanthropic international development effort is like a hundred percent no brainer. Physically going to the country, I think if done right, can be a really important part of like meeting the people and learning from them and becoming more committed. But I think if done wrong, um, it can feel like you're, ex it can be, ex you're exploiting like the poor, yeah, you know? Yeah, and, and it's like, I get a lot of folks and it's funny now that I'm a mom, I sort of like have more patience for it. Or I see, you know, I had a lot of folks, you know, can my kids, can I send my kids to Kenya yeah. for spring break? Yeah. And it's an interesting question, you know, in the beginning, I would have been like hundred percent. And then I was like, no way, this is exploiting the poor. And now I'm like somewhere in the middle where it's like, I think it's really important that our kids see the world yeah. and that our kids understand what the world, what the real world is like, but it has to be done within an infrastructure whereby they're not getting access to vulnerable kids. I don't care who your kids are. Like your, your, your kids shouldn't have access to vulnerable kids in a way that's outside of just like a summer camp mentor or something, or, you know, when, when folks just really, it's like, what can I get from it? So it's like, I want my kids to like be grateful for what they have. Well, it's not the role of our students in Kenya to educate your kids about their privilege. It's your role to educate your kids about the, about, about privilege and, and development can, can be somewhat of a tool for that. But I think like the priorities of the community have to come first. And like, you know, it's like, we joke about this all the time in development, but like, we don't need you to fly to Kenya to paint a school. Like you can hire a laborer for a dollar a day, yeah. but like, if you need to come and paint a school to like understand why global education should be a priority in your philanthropic giving, then like come to Kenya, paint a school. But anyone that's like, we just really need that manpower. We really need that labor. Well, you're taking jobs away from local people who can probably do it better. It's like, you know, we joke like volunteers come and then you undo what they did. And then you, get the, you get the Kenyans to do it right. You yeah. Know? I, I so do, I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. I think it's like case by case. As you have mentioned earlier about um, my religious background, I, I, because of my religious background, I got to do many, many of those kind of experiences. And, uh, and I think I had, been on a half dozen, but you know, by the time I was 21 or something, 22. Yeah. Mission and, trips. And, yeah. Mission trips, you know, orphanages, schools, the whole deal, um, all over the world, you know, Mexico, Africa, or Zambia mostly, but Botswana, South Africa, like that kind of in, in Zimbabwe. Uh, but we were mostly based out of Zambia then Thailand, uh, Israel and the, and the, you know, I was an adult, 22 years old, when the orphanage guy that we were working with in um, on the Baja Peninsula, he's like, you guys know that you're not, like, you're actually bad workers. Like, you're really, 
like you you just said it like you you know you're you're kind of fucking up our orphanage here you know with your construction and all that stuff and i it dawned on me i was like oh that oh we're we're kind of this negative workforce here that's taking up resources and i guess the resources that we're bringing probably in the form of money or just playing right like playing basketball with kids or whatever it was it offsets that just enough just enough that it's they allow it to continue to happen and and now that i'm a, a parent of a teenage boy you know we live in we live in a very privileged neighborhood like a really nice zip code and we we live in a, a building that has mixed income the, the building was made to be like that and so we can see even within our building like some families have a lot some families are just barely making it and yet outside this window there are multi-million dollar condos you know overlooking the neighborhood we live and then on the other side of our building is like the the shanty towns that have like mm -hmm. been popping up all over the west coast because the opioid you know problem and housing crisis and the whole deal and and we can't show our kids enough of the reality and through movies for them to like truly understand yet like i think it's a developmental issue honestly i mean i think that is part of it too like you can like put your kid in front of like the most just like awful humanitarian disaster and they're going to be like what's the wi-fi code like totally, and i yeah. think just like accepting that a little bit to some degree you know is that's just like kids. I mean, I've met kids who, who are literally like in living the most disastrous situation. And they're like, can we get a smartphone? Like, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> at like some that. point, yeah. you know, and, like and, 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 and not expecting, I mean, that's a big thing for us is like, you know, you want your kids to sort of like have their consciousness raised and be a certain yeah. way. And it's probably, you know, you, you definitely can like get them closer, but like, they're still going to be teenagers who are sort of self-obsessed but affording that also to like the kids that we're serving. So like, you know, we had, we ran a child sponsorship program and like, sometimes I had to be like, yeah, your kid dropped out of school. And it's like this feeling of like ungrateful, like I just want a kid that's just so grateful for the opportunities. Mm. Like, so these are also teenagers yeah. who actually have overcome like immense trauma. And so it's going to be even harder for them to just be yeah. these little like awesome students but, but we don't sort of afford that level of just like messiness to the poor. It's like you default on a loan or you take that $5 and don't do exactly what I thought you should have done with it. Like we want the poor to be like in line. You know what I mean? Lila, did you, um, ex uh, we usually ask like, is there anything off uh, limits to ask about we didn't? So please no. feel free to like dodge no. this question. But um is there anything that happened in your life that uh made you like uh ready to really do something on this level of compassion and i think like in large part it was sort of like having a really cushy life that set me up to be to have it shattered when i landed in nairobi as a 19 year old like i think being soft in that way and sort of just like it's you know assuming that the world was like a safe place and then traveling to Kenya at 19 and seeing like a very violent level of poverty that five-year-olds were you know like you know here no matter where you are in the U.S. like if there's a 
you know, if you or I are, and I are having like coffee and there's like a five-year-old walking down the road with no shoes, that's like hungry, <laughs> like we, like, it's not a perfect system, but like we could bring them into CVS and like call them, like th- th- there's a system. Yeah. And like in Kenya to like see homeless, homeless kids and like, there's not that safety net and, you know, like eight-year-olds sniffing glue on the street and kids begging for food. And for me, it was just like, I remember like almost being like, does my mom know about this? Like this can't <laughs> what a be, great thought. you know, I just remember being like this, like this, I, you know, I grew up like, you know, just my mom just raised me just like so safe and everything was safe and predictable. And then like, I got here and I was almost like mad at her. I was like, what about these kids? You know, it was sort of just like outrageous to me. And it was like, and you try and like rationalize it. I think the way a lot of us do when we see suffering, even like the other day, I saw like a woman with two kids in a sign, like my husband lost his job. I can't pay rent. And like, I caught myself doing what I know other people do, which is like, it was so unbearable to like see her. It's getting cold here in Boulder. It's like almost Christmas. It's like humiliating to be sitting out there with a sign. I'm like driving my nice car. And I caught myself like adding a little bit more to her sign than was there. Like I caught myself being like, well, what was his job? Like, you know, I just like asking those further questions because like the pain was just like, it was so awful what I was seeing. And, you know, in Kenya, when you come and you see that level of poverty, it's like, well, so, you know, you hear these like stories like, well, the parents send the kids out to um, to beg and they're just like they're just hiding behind the dumpster. And it's like, you know, I was there long enough and went back enough. Like, no, no. Like these kids have nobody. They huddle together at night and they sleep on the streets and they sniff glue because they're hungry and hopeless. Um and I wasn't like hard to the world. And so like I had no barrier that just like went all the way like in. You know, why did you think you could you get you you get there in 19 and then who told you that you were allowed to give a shit enough to like put this all together? Like what what in your brain? Because I think a lot of us like myself, I'll just use myself as an example. I did all that. I saw yeah. the poverty. I didn't see it to that extent, but I've, I've been in parts. I was, I was able to be in parts of the world by a certain point in my life. I knew the world was not okay. Yeah. But there wasn't that thing in my brain. I think part of it was cult, my cultural upbringing. You know, there was other needs that I, my culture was telling me I needed to tend to, but what, what about you? Like, why did you say like, that's the, that's the switch that I, I have to do something about this. Well, I think it was a long journey and it didn't start out like that. So like, you know, I went, I went with my college roommate, Justine, my co-founder and our good friend, Toby, who's a third co-founder. And like, we went and just like volunteered. And then the next year we raised money and we went back and volunteered. And then the next year, you know, this is throughout college, like we went back and every time that we went back, we sort of started to learn more. And back in school, we were reading like about other, we read about Paul Farmer, who whose work is outlined in Mountains Beyond Mountains, and just like read about him sort of starting this organization from, from nothing. And I think that the message had to be given to us like many, many times, you know, we, we sort of like, we were obsessed with like um, convincing the founder of this orphanage she was a Kenyan woman. Um, we were con- obsessed with convincing her to buy land in the mountains. And like, you know, they're in the slums where everything was just like polluted and hard and violent. And we were obsessed that if we bought farmland, they could 
have a farm and the quality of life would be so much higher and fresh stream water and all of that. And like, again, like that was our vision. It wasn't hers. Like Mm. she was from the slums. Her whole family was in the slums. She also maybe felt like she needed to show this level of poverty because her income source, what were the churches? And they were signing up to pet the poor. And so by the time we got to our senior year, we'd kind of sold a lot of our friends' parents on this vision of like, we want to move this orphanage to a farm in the mountains. And then there wasn't really any willingness on the founder of the orphanage to move to the mountains. And we were kind of like, awkward, like we've taken so much money, like what should we do? And like my third co-founder, Toby is, is, British and just sort of like wild. And I think he was just like, let's just do it ourselves. And, and Justine, my college roommate is like much more conservative. And so I was like, I remember sort of like looking at her, like, well, if she thinks it's a good idea, if he thinks it's a good idea, it's crazy. We shouldn't do it. But if she's also subscribing, like maybe it's not a bad idea. So we graduated in May and we moved to Kenya that summer And by September, we bought three acres of like the most beautiful farmland you've ever seen. Like people think East Africa, you think like Ha, and this is like semi-alpine. You could be in Austria, like lush, lush. We're at 8,000 feet altitude. We're we're in the, the, there's like wild elephant in our backyard. It is just like the most amazing place. And we have an expansive farm. We um, have bees. I mean, like we really just take, we take advantage of every aspect of like being in the most beautiful. And, um, and, and we've built a, we have a huge campus that I think a lot of people, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of is like, we didn't contextualize it for poverty. Like, you know, we didn't build like a less than average building because we were in a really poor community. Like we built like a state of the art campus. You know, it's millions of dollars into these buildings and they are stunning. And for me, it's like, I think that piece gets missed a lot when you're talking about the poor is that like, they also deserve like beauty. Mm. Um, The access to things that expand their understanding of possibility yeah i I mean or or even i don't it's not even me expanding their possibility it's me making a statement about my own intent so it's like me saying like i'm not here to like water down services and give you something i wouldn't give my own kid it's me saying like i understand that this is not about charity this is about equity and just making that statement of intent and having it be just aspirational versus just like here are the bunkers that we built. We wouldn't have built them anywhere else, but we're in rural Kenya. So. So is there, when you do come here and you see like the woman and the kids on the road uh, with the sign, what do you do? I just, um, I did what everyone does. I just sort of like, well, first I looked at her and then I quickly looked away. And then I felt like um, I don't have any cash, but maybe I can, I mean, it was like, it's a conversation that like everyone has. Like I looked at her, I looked away and I was like, that's too awful. Then I tried to justify it, that there was something less awful that I was missing. And then, and then I, and then I realized I don't have any cash. And I just looked at her and just like, tried to just look like a mom and just smile at her and her kids. And it was like, I can maybe just not show that, like, I'm afraid to look into her. Like I can, You know, and then and then I have a conversation that Mike is sick of having with me, but like nobody has cash anymore. 
and nobody, and it's the same thing. Like we don't allow like poor people to like innovate, but like, like we should start, like I would Venmo, like, wouldn't you Venmo? Like, I mean, I don't know. Like what if there was an organization that like, nobody has cash. Like I might have two quarters, but like, there's still homeless people. There's still, you know, and it depends. Some people are like, don't give homeless people money. Like some people are like, when you come to Kenya, if you see a kid begging, like just don't give them money. It fuels it. Well, I think there's definitely a, I I like the Venmo, the Venmo uh, type of thing. Do you though? If you saw, but do you like it? Like if you walked out today and you saw a homeless person was like, I Venmo is, you would laugh. What I was going to say was I like the Venmo thinking because I think that there's an idea for innovation and a niche there to to create something. I'm not saying that Venmoing it is the answer, but there's something there that can go that can become cash de- uh, dependent from cash or independent from cash. But um, and and uh, but I, what I think that personally, what's important, one of the things that's important that I do value around that moment where you do see people on um, the street is doing what you did is like, how about I just, one of the things I can always do, whether or not I have cash, whether or not someone invents a cashless way to provide some money. I'm looking at him, I'm the one that came up with it. it <laughs> that's not what that was about. Uh, is, uh, is to feel, like, it's just mm-hmm. to feel. Like I would, I, I smile and nod and have a conversation, you know, with, with, uh, in that moment all the time. And I've noticed just by body language and sometimes the words that are said that that, that means something to that person. That yeah. To have a human interaction that is accepting and equal and just like, I'm here with you. I'm not gonna say it's better than money. I would not say that, but fuck, it is not, yeah. it's not what you might think it would be, which is, yeah, yeah, I just want your money. Like I've never gotten that. And I have right. this experience right. a lot. I'll roll my window down, be like, how you doing? And I'll crack a joke, have a, have a moment, you know, a human moment. And there's right. like psychological warmth that comes from that. I right, know. right. Just like recognizing someone as a human being. It's cool too. It's actually really enjoyable, you know, right. for, for them and for me. And then of course that should come with, hey, here's a little money. And many times it does because I right. tend to have like some change or something. And also like nobody carries cash. Well, buy buy some quarters like grab some quarters and right, fill them up. right 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 carry like, cash you don't right. even make it a thing is anyway yeah, i'm just curious because yeah. that moment is is an important moment i think and it's a potential human moment that it's so easy to look away and i still do that of course i force myself to be like fuck this you know like yeah yeah it's not even the look away that that's bad it's like the glance and then the like then the, the ignoring yeah that's like, true awful. and I, i'm like guilty of that too you know or talk you know imagining what they would do with money that you really have no no idea. Or like, I talk, like people are like, you know, I've got people that say to me like, oh, you know, this organization or this person in East Africa needs this amount of money for something, but like, how do I know if it's legit or how do I know? And I'm like, look, you can do due diligence, but at some point, like, you just have to be like, what is it to me? Like, if I, if I, if I send this guy 500 bucks and like, he doesn't do what he says he's going to do, like, yeah. what is it to me? Like, I, am I okay losing that amount of money? Because like, I actually believed, you know, um, we talk about that a lot too. Just like, just letting go. Like I was just thinking about how often we we as Westerners squander opportunity of, with all kinds of dollar signs attached to them. Whether it's 
uh, you know, something dumb, like I'm getting into a new hobby and I've, I've spent thousands of dollars on this new hobby that then sits in the garage hanging from hooks or something like that. And then we have this insane um, possessiveness over a, even, a, you know, half the amount or a quarter of the amount totally. to someone else totally. that it could be life-changing. Life-changing. I mean, life where we live in, where we are in, in, in Kenya, um, you know, we, we like to say that it's kind of like at the intersection beti- between poverty and prosperity, you know, where literally a, a gift of $2,000 to a family of four can change their socioeconomic trajectory forever. You know, like you give a family, you know, your size $2,000, they can uh, rent uh, property to farm, they can buy a dairy cow and all of a sudden have another source of income. And like they slowly, now they put their kids in school, then they save a little bit, then they fix their roof. They slowly pull themselves out. Conversely, like a hit of $2,000, you know, like all of a sudden you, um, your dairy cow dies or there's an extended drought and like, you know, you planted your farm and nothing came then, you know, your kids aren't going to school, then your roof starts to leak, then you get sick, then you can't afford the medical bills, like, and then you start catapulting into even more extreme poverty. So it's like, the the purchasing power of the dollar, like where we are is wild, like, it's just wild. I mean, you as an average family here can have an outsized impact in in Kenya. And like, and that's amazing to me, like, Mm. that, you know, that, there are a lot of things that are like really complex, but like the the way your dollar operates in Kenya and like, you know, the truth is, is like people aren't squandering money. <laughs> you know, I love like I always hear like the term social entrepreneur and I'm like every single person in Kenya is a social entrepreneur. Like every person like in our community, you know, they're like trying to start a business for the benefit of others. You know, so let, let's say someone had 20 bucks they wanted to send over. I know it's like hardly anything, but where would where would a good place how would, how would that happen? What's a good way to do that? Well, so if you came to me with 20 bucks, I would tell you to ask Ron for 12. And then with $32, you could provide a warm meal every single day. A kid is in school for a year. So like you think of what you spend $32. It costs us. It's stupid. You, it costs us $32 a year to give a kid in our network, a warm meal. And before they were having these meals, um, many kids were going from like 6 a.m. to 4 p.m. with nothing to eat. It's like you imagine how like hangry you get at like this time. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so and that's kind of been the challenge of some of our messaging at Flying Kites is like, you know, as you grow in as, as an organization, you get some like bigger funders and you're excited to sort of like project that. You also want the folks who are giving $32 to know, like, no, this is real. This that really matters. That's a ton of money for us in, in, in Kenya. So it'd be two organizations like you. I mean, I really want to know. Like if I had 20 bucks, I want to give it over there. Like, yeah, give it to flying kites. Give it to us. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you the link. Please do, please I'll do send us the link. Like you uh you had put a link up, I think, about this time last year, or no, it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh and and things were on lockdown and access to food was crazy because of logistics. And you threw some number. It was like some number like that. Yeah, it was. And it was a family of eight. It was yeah. like, I, I have to look, I'm going to misquote it. I got somewhere there, but same thing. I mean, yeah. we, we fed um, like 6,000 families um, throughout the whole lockdown. 
Uh, we provided food. I don't want to say we fed. We provided food for like 6,000 families throughout the lockdown because like the, the families that we work with. So that's they, roughly 18,000 people. Yeah. We have, and it was like a certain number of tons. And I mean, it was just, it was incredible. And it, that was like, that's, we have this awesome community here. And I, and it's I, not and huge. I, and I want to just tell, you know, tell Daniel and whoever's listening, that cost me personally, Ron Cecil, I don't know what, I, I can't remember. It was like 30 bucks. I keep looking over here because I, I have the actual number, but it was, yeah, it was like, but it, but that, that yeah. actually, all of it went to a family of eight who ate yeah. for six weeks. Yeah. And, 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 and I, what I was saying is like the families that we're, we're working with, like they're a lot of times, mostly they're uh, farmers, casual laborers. So it's like you, Ron, you're a father of three, five, whatever kids you wake up in the morning, you hope that like, you're going to get picked up to work on a farm. So like you wait, you see if there's an opportunity, if there is, you'll make a dollar $2 a day adjusted for purchasing power. And you'll use that money to buy food like that night. Like you'll use that money to buy on your way home. You'll buy rice, you'll buy oil, you'll buy firewood. So there's no like pantry, you know, whereas like, oh, now you don't have job, you know, when, when Kenya was on lockdown, it was like, you can't leave the house. There's no savings fund. There's no pantry. It was literally like, now you're three days out and like you haven't eaten for three days. And what was hard for me is like the community that we work in, a lot of like communities that have a ton of NGOs and a lot of charities just are, have a different sort of vibe to them. Our community is like a very old time village where everybody kind of knows everyone's business, but like folks are generally very proud and private and, you know, I don't know how, but their kids, you know, like every day their clothes are scrubbed, you know, they look like pristine. I, there's just like, there's very much like a pride to our community that you see in like old town communities. You don't really find them so much in like cities and stuff because it's like, oh, so-and-so saw me today at the market and, you know, I, whatever. When COVID hit, like the level of like just sheer desperation that these people descended to was really scary for us. You know, like we've never had parents like begging for food or like telling us like that they're really scared for their kids. Like folks just aren't like that. Like they're, they're not so outwardly vulnerable. Um, they suffer silently and privately, but it was just like really hard to all of a sudden see like these folks who you've worked alongside for years, just like desperate for food. No, Lila, I know we're out of time here. Um, uh, do you, uh, is there anything else you wanted to say about this or, you know, I know we kind of, we were talking about like a hard end on the time side. No, no, no. And it's, it's great. I, um, I, sorry. I'm like, you know, it's the last day before Christmas. So I was like, <laughs> last day before, yeah. before no work. Yeah. Um, no, I just want to say like, thank you guys for what you do. I love you. Like your willingness to just like, think about this and like, create this space to have these conversations. Like, you know, I'm just getting to know you, Daniel, but like Ron, like the example that you leave in the world, like as you show up as like a, a dad and like a husband, I like that had such an effect on me. Like, you know, we spent a couple of days together a couple of years ago and like watching you, like the way you support Morgan and just like the way you are in the world. I love that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I, I, I am humbled by that because you're making an actual impact in thousands of lives. And, and uh, the, the fact that you have made it accessible for regular people like myself to, to participate in that. Yeah. I mean, it's a, so tonight, my, what we've been doing this every year, as long as we've been married, we, you know, we go to flying kites or we go to 
we have a, I think about six or eight organizations that we regularly give to. And then, and then at the end of the year, we'll also do like a cow purchase or a chickens or bees, or we'll do a few, each kid needs to it. pick something. And that's kind of the way we try to spend like the most, like the biggest chunk of Christmas money. I love that. Yeah. And that's like going back to kids, you know, I I know your kids are like at that age where like having that conversation, like rather than forcing something down their throats, like saying like starting to ask them, like what lights you up? Like it doesn't have to be poverty or education in East Africa. Like how do you feel about our oceans? Like how do you Mm. feel about, Mm. you know, rainforests? Like, you know, or if they're so little like pandas, like just getting them to start, like Mm. getting them to start asking like, what lights you up? You know, like it's, it's, and, and for me, it's like, there's just so, there's so many exciting projects and it's like exposing your kids to different things. And like, you just never know what's going to be that thing. That's like, you know, it might be homelessness in your own community. It might be, you know, and so like letting them explore that, I think is really a cool. It's really great. I I think too, like a, just a last note for me at least is a, you know, if a person doesn't feel like they have a lot to give, like money-wise, what I've noticed, and this is this goes to just like investing too, just like in the stock situation or whatever your investments are, it's just like opening the space the to start, you know, like, like totally. take an extreme example. Let me donate one dollar, but you have to build the infrastructure of how to totally like make the totally. call, but you know, it's just like starting. One of our biggest funders is, an, is a foundation called One Day's Wages. And it was started by this guy who just donated, he calculated what is one day's wages for me. And he just every year donated one day's wages. And now it's like a, an enormous funder because all these people's, people go, go and they donate one day's wages. That's awesome. Um, That's amazing. And guys, I love that. Are you guys taking cryptocurrencies at all? No, I need, we should figure that out though. I'll, I'll connect you with some people who are really smart. And that's the- okay. I have my own story around that, but, but it, the, the, my biggest draw to any of the cryptocurrencies was, was the unbankable population on earth. And, and I would love to connect about this and yeah. Mike thinking and talking a lot about that too. Um, right. yeah, no, we're just like psyched if we can figure out how to take Apple pay. So like, <laughs> the problem, <laughs> we need to figure it out. Um, anyway, you guys are the best. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Merry Christmas to all you guys. Soon. Happy holidays. Okay. Everybody. Take care. Night. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye. Dressing code sign up. So 46, I believe. 46? 47? Yeah, episode 46 plus the prologue is 47. Yeah, that was great. Flying kites. I've like she said, we met um five years ago at a um at a small conf- a small like retreat of creatives like her and myself and Morgan and some other folks. And um that's where we met and and we were it, it, you know, I think all of us were about her age or a little, maybe a little older. And we were all like, what are we doing? You know, we were looking at our businesses and things like that and going, what the fuck are we doing? Like this, like, yeah, it's, it's she's providing education and, and foundational needs to people who like, this is actually life-changing stuff. Yeah. And I, I don't want to downplay any of the work I do or I have done over the past, but it feels a little Mickey Mouse. You know, it feels a little Mickey Mouse to talk about your feelings with a with with a person when she's like, "Oh, you're hungry. You have no access to food." Quick question. Yeah. I know this is like 
podcast business yeah um, on the but can we do the instagram live can i try it? oh yeah i forgot about that yeah, yeah i want to really yeah. want to get in that okay. sure yeah let's do that i know so pause hang with us hang with us um because i have something to say about that okay let's uh let's go live here and then you, are you gonna go live too i would like to but i don't know how to do it <laughs> can you do it motherfucker? we yeah, gotta get you there's instagram okay oh, sure. i instagram i like that uh that's awesome okay check this out Let's just go live. Mine is not live yet. I have okay. to press live. And we can edit this stuff. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So you go to the plus sign right here. Yes. And you hit live. Okay. Okay. And then when you're ready, then when you're ready, you are going to press that live button. And that's it? That's it. Okay, but I want us to both be in it. We good? Yeah, we're good, buddy. <laughs> so good. Oh, there's so many screens. Yeah, hey, we're live. Uh, cutting your sign, field dressing episode 46. Lila De Bruni. Lila De Bruni. I yeah. want to say Lila De Bruni, uh, one of the co founders of Flying Kites, an organization in uh, East Africa and Kenya, who started with her roommate and another friend of theirs 17 years ago, it sounds like. And um, not an orphanage. Not an orphanage. And I knew that as I was I know you did. I was trying to communicate that. Yeah. That it was your way of saying of like of like making a joke, but I don't think that landed. I think just <laughs> making you look like an asshole. That was on me. Which is true. I knew I knew that was coming. That's like one of the, <laughs> which is true. It's one of those things where it's like, all right, I know this is gonna make him sound like a jerk, but I'm pretty sure I can do a preamble that will cover your ass. And they just didn't want. Don't, 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 don't worry <laughs> about it. Don't worry about Oopsie. it. We <laughs> fucked up. It was fine. Okay. So, go, all right. So the thing about this was a theme that came up in this conversation was was someone says someone says something that, that's that someone does something incredible like Lila does. She's starting a group of schools or heading a group of schools in Kenya. It sounds like mainly the the hub school is yeah, like really good. The and then they end up being a model yeah. for other schools to like really get their stuff together. Yeah. Um, and and then so we're talking to her about that. And then you know one thing I noticed that that you do is that you'll be like, this is a little bit of shame. I think is you'll be like, mm -hmm. how can I? I don't know how the word you just did it right before we went live. And I was like, yes, we need to talk about this. But it's like, oh, oh, the shame. Oh, okay. I would, we were talking when I first met Lila, um, I met her in a, in a environment of, of creatives and business people, mostly coaches, honestly, who were together to kind of, um, learn some things together, support one another, just be there for each other. And, and, and I remember personally thinking, I won't speak for anybody else who was there, but I remember thinking, what am I doing? Like, it, like I do get a lot of, of, um, reward from helping a man walk out of shame or helping a man uh, like see himself through a new through new light and she i mean she even had had briefly mentioned in the interview that she looks in the mirror and says some affirmations like that's the yeah. kind of stuff i teach but i felt shame when i first met her because i'm like well, i'm doing that one person at a time meanwhile she's feeding thousands right. of families not only is she feeding them or giving them access to food through her 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 work but she's also providing education and, and it's this is 
it's yeah. going, you know, it's growing well beyond even just her. Yeah, she's her. doing a hell of a lot yeah. more than you are seemingly. Totally. At the same time, and I think this is like one of the most important things to talk about around this subject is like, we were talking about shame with David. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. Crazy. Yeah. That, that's a good example of, of how shame, in my opinion, can be a call to action. Mm. You know, jealousy a lot of times for me yeah. is a call to action. Like I'll see someone doing something because that's like a potent thing in my life. I like to learn skills, you know? And I'll get jealous, but like that jealous, all it, jealousy, all it is, is a call to action to like, mm. for me to incorporate mm. that some way in my life, or sometimes because you, you can't learn everything yeah. all the time, you know, you let go of it and you just admire and you got to confront that jealousy. But I think that shame can also be a call to action in, in that, in the way that you're talking about. Certainly, It's definitely not something you just want to let like stew, right. And you just keep feeling it's like, that's, that's something in you telling you make an action. What's weird though, and it gets a little fucky, is like that can spin out of control. And now it's not a call to action. This is a state of being where it's like right. feeding the shame is feeding back and it just like spins out. So I just think the whole discussion is really interesting and valuable. It is valuable. And, and def I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. And I and I that that she is a person who is modeling for us what you're describing, which is even as a young person, she went to Kenya and felt the shame of the difference between the insane poverty. That she was witnessing that not only a poverty but the this human suffering the addiction all of that all of that humanity at its worst in some ways yeah. and she felt her own levels of shame and embarrassment and shock and decided to take action towards that yeah and i had a similar moment at the um uh right as the george floyd experience was happening to us nationally and and really paying attention to certain issues that I hadn't been paying attention to before, in particular minimum sentencing. So when a person does something wrong in the law, there's now these laws all over the country that, oh, you fucked up? The minimum sentence for that now, which was made to try to be a deterrent, yeah. has now created the largest prison population in the country or the world sure. and it's really fucked up and i and at that moment i stood up in my living room i yelled at my tv for this existing and i thought what's the fastest easiest way for this white guy who doesn't know shit about anything to change this i can give money to lawyers who do know how to change this and i talked to my wife and we went and got on the computer and set up automatic donations to to organizations who are actually fighting for the things that could reverse those kinds of laws. And, and I realized like, oh, there's, if, if we could get a, enough of us to do that similar thing, to make it a regular part of our living, like we can actually begin to change things. And that's what she's doing. That's how she, that's her whole life is she's telling the story of the suffering, not taking, um, a, not, a, a, allowing herself to be creative and allowing herself to be wrong. What I mean by that is she's loud, she's testing different models. This didn't work, yeah. this didn't work, maybe this will work. Oh, this hey, this one's working. And and inviting people to participate in it. And even giving herself some grace for that past shame, like where she was like describing, man, I fucked up. Well, I, don't, I shouldn't say that. It was cringy <laughs> to me how I was before. And now I I see my heart in the matter. And I yeah. and I I think there's no. You know, she's wrestling with all the emotions of it, and yeah. I'm I'm got lost. I, yeah, I just yeah. I I don't really know how to discuss as much about like 
people should do this and help this but like, yeah. i get a little tuned out when it comes to like that like that's up to everybody i i know the little things that i know how to give back what i'm really curious about and i get kind of engaged around mm. is like when someone feels an emotion about about like that they, they makes them feel shame or small mm. and then what do you do with that yeah it's a great and question like, and great what question. i and i think that there's there's like a difference it, there we can tie that to the personal actions like you made that yeah. day that's great you know um but it, it when does shame and negative emotional experiences because we're dominated by our emotions like yeah. they're a huge part of our life yeah when do those when are they useful like in an evolutionary this is why this emotion exists way yeah and then when do they become folded back on themselves and and just invalid they're hurting us yeah. they're, they're helping nobody you yeah. know and then how do we like untangle that and like choose something different yeah and i think that that is one of the that's the grassroots personal grassroots work that a person can do is like get our emotions and our thoughts to start to align and give us each one of us to have agency and choice based on emotions and not have our emotions force us into choices and words that don't represent who we really are yeah you know what i mean yeah david david mcraney said in the episode previous episode of this one to bring curiosity to those emotions that's awesome yeah sometimes it's hard because they're, they're too strong mm -hmm. but like but yeah i agree like um and what the kind of thing that that spurred this this topic for me and, and mm -hmm. this is something that s some people do where where we'll hear something that's bad and they'll just and they'll say something to the effect of of like yeah what am i doing you know like the little everything that they give most of their life and attention to it's like don't don't do that yeah not you know don't do yeah. that like what you're doing if it's if it needs to change change it for sure make incremental steps toward it definitely but like the idea of holding opposites is huge in my mind right now. Yeah. It's very human and it's a, 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 allegedly it's one of the more human and frontal cortex things. It's like a very good thing for us to do is to be able to hold opposites. And I really like the idea of me not belittling, you know, and maybe that's a better word sometimes than shame. Yeah. Just like yeah. belittling like the things that I give my life to because other people are suffering. You know, I don't, yeah. I, I would have to talk for a long time as to exactly why. But like I went on, I went on like a date, you know, recently, right? And I'm listening to her, and I'm also thinking about this, this not thinking about the date, like half of my attention is there. But I'm, <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. But like I'm thinking about in context of what she's saying. Was yeah. Like, oh, I went on a date, spent sixty bucks, right? You know, on a yeah. drink and a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I was like, do I feel bad about that? Hell no. Right. I did that with integrity. I remember speaking to the bar person, like well i remember we had a nice human reaction uh, interaction i remember a little conflict that almost happened i was like no i, I like repped mm -hmm. society well in that moment mm -hmm. you know also just note to self that 60 bucks could have fed fucking like six families people, all year you know? yeah and so like what am i going to do with that yeah you know and i just think that holding opposites and like get rid of the beating ourselves up it's fucking yeah, totally. it, it's like maybe it's good for five seconds and then make an action on it sure. and then outside of that get rid of it that's right if one can, that's the easier said than done. Uh, I want to plug her organization one more time before you end this. Flying kites, flyingkites.org. Yeah, uh, you can go there and give. It sounds great. It's really great. They they are. Uh, I have I have participated in a lot of missional experiences that um, were on all kinds of scales of winning souls for Jesus to building 
building things and being there and and their organization flying kites is doing it in a way that i that was beyond my understanding when i first heard it and is scalable she talked about one of her donors going how are you going to scale this and it was a question she hadn't even considered but now they're doing it and the scaling is going like look here's a model we think we could do scaling meaning like scaling is like how do we replicate this oh. if you can do it for one person how can you do it for 10 how can you do it for 50 100 and in their model of educating educators locally and empowering locals to do this thing is really really powerful so please go you know feed a family go for, help those guys feed a family for a year I didn't or more than that i didn't get the impression that what she's doing had anything to do with religion does it not at all yeah. no there's no religion yeah, yeah. other charity other than charity <laughs> which is a value of religions yeah. Thanks guys, appreciate it. Uh, see you next time.